Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had, been, had seen, when it rose, went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. This past Thursday was the Thursday of the Epiphany, which each year the church relishes and celebrates that God has expounded his grace and has shared his grace, the message of the birth of the King, our Savior Jesus Christ, to all the nations. The word epiphany, for maybe the kids in here, those of you new to uh, uh, church traditions and wonder what in the world to get that mean, it it means that your eyes have been opened, that you've become conscious of something that you're otherwise uh, completely blind to. You've been aware of something in such a dramatic way that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so this Sunday, we celebrate the Epiphany here in Matthew chapter 2 as God gives the sign to these cultural, political leaders, uh, these star charters, um, and they get this Epiphany of Christ. And this is a picture of God's grace intended to go to the nations. If you're exploring Christian faith uh, or you're new to church, you might be wondering, why in the world are we talking about this? Christmas was a couple weeks ago. Um, but the reason why we celebrate this today is because actually these, these wise men, these magi, uh, the cultural leaders who, who would give um, uh, their role was to give uh, counsel to the king that, uh, or leaders of their, their nation. Uh, this didn't happen at the birth of Christ. All the nativity scenes that we see put the wise men there. And of course, this happened years later. So we're thrown off a little bit because the, the, the nativity imagery that we're bombarded with muddles it a little bit. Some people have nativity scenes and they, and they have a fun tradition in their home where they set up the nativity scene, but they put the wise men on the other side of the room. And then during Advent, as they're moving closer to Christmas, the wise men keep moving from furniture to furniture, getting closer and closer and closer until Epiphany Sunday when today, actually, they'll go home from church and they'll say, hey, they made it. Well, they would have technically done that on Thursday, but that, that's a more accurate sort of biblical picture of the nativity. But we get confused. Some nativity scenes have Santa giving gifts with the wise men. It's like a weird multiverse mashup. 
Uh, other nativity scenes, uh, well, no nativity scene has a dragon in it, but they should all have a dragon in it because in Revelation 12, there's a great prophecy that at the birth of Christ, the prince of darkness wants to devour the Christ child, this poetic imagery of wanting to snuff out God's plan for salvation. So there should be a dragon in the nativity scene, but there's not. Uh, sometimes we get thrown off a little bit because maybe there's a little drummer boy there, and uh, we don't, it's cute, but we don't know what's going on. Uh, or, you know, the nativity scene is somewhat accurate, except for um, there's always that pigmentation debacle where baby Jesus looks like Caillou and Joseph looks like Obi-Wan. And you bought the wrong nativity set, if that's the one you have. I don't know what to say to you. But at any rate, they throw us off a little bit uh, because the timeline was Jesus was probably between two and three years old uh, because they, Christ was born in Bethlehem, but they fled as refugees to Egypt uh, when uh, uh, initially uh, at this point where uh, they hear this news, or when Herod hears the news, they, 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 they flee, uh, but, then they're, but then they're returning. And by the time that this timeline all occurs, a following of the star, quite a bit of time had passed. So they weren't there right at the birth. They weren't there with the shepherds. So that's just for the benefit of those of you maybe new to church. Um, hopefully that's helpful. This morning, I want us to consider the implications of this text, and we're going to look at three things. Um, Firstly, I want us to see that there's a clash of thrones in the birth of Christ. Secondly, we're going to talk about the epiphany of grace, and then lastly, the ministry of reconciliation. But firstly, this clash of thrones. Uh, The news that this king had come provoked two significantly different reactions, right? The Magi worshipped at Christ's throne. The Magi desire to seek the Christ child and worship at his throne. And upon the exact same news, Herod wants to defend his throne. And the Magi, of course, they fall on their knees in worship of Christ's lordship. Herod rejects Christ in order to maintain his lordship. And uh, historian N.T. Wright makes a cheeky comment. And he says, Christians would do well to keep Herod in Christmas. Uh, we're, we're, we're very cognizant to want to keep Christ at the center of Christmas, but we would, be, we would do well to keep Herod in Christmas. And what he means by that is notice Herod's reaction to the Lord and the King. Because being a Christian is inevitably political. By political, I, I don't mean partisan politics. I mean, if there is a king, then there is a kingdom. And if there is a king and a kingdom, and his kingdom is the earth, then that means that the, that the king has rule. And if he has rule and reign, then that means there is wisdom in his law and in his instruction. And if there is wisdom in his law and in his instruction, that that means that the one who defines truth and reality and what is good and what is right is the king. Even if his definitions of what is true and good and right contradict the narratives of truth and good and rightness in, in our own hearts and minds or in the hearts and minds of our culture. So inevitably, to bend the knee to the king is unavoidably political because then we live to the glory uh, of the one who came to us in grace. And so, these two responses that we see to Jesus, they're the only responses. There isn't any other response. Jesus is either of utmost importance and like the Magi, we fall down and worship him and we bend our knee. Whatever that requires of us, we're willing to do it. Or we're like Herod and we say, absolutely not, I will not bend my knee. I'm on the throne. Those are the only two reactions to Jesus. Jesus is not moderately important. If he's the king, then everything that he says, everything that he does, everything that he calls his people to is of the utmost importance. So the Magi ask Herod this terrifying question in verse 2, and they say to the king, hey, 
where's the one born king? It doesn't get more political than that. When you're looking the guy in the eye who's on the throne and you're like, we're here to, we're here to seek the one whose kingdom has come. Mega intimidating conversation. And it results, of course, in, in uh, Herod being absolutely terrified. Now, Herod is threatened. The incarnation of Jesus Christ that we celebrate at Christmas, it is life-changing. It is liberating. We took the whole Advent season to talk about that. But here we're reminded that before it's liberating and before the worship of Jesus is, is life-changing, it's confronting. It's life-changing, of course, because as the life of Jesus plays out in the Gospels and we read about his life of love and of wisdom and of care, we learn that this king did not come to judge and condemn and banish us, but this king has come to forgive and redeem so that God would adopt us. So it is liberating and it is life-changing because not only the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, but his, his, his loving life, his atoning death, his divine resurrection means that life is not confined to the temporal, that life is, for those united to Christ, eternal, that there is an age to come after this age that we're in of this beauty and the paradox of brokenness. So it is also life-changing, but it's confronting here because of the things that we, that Herod is confronted with, that you and I are confronted with. If there is a king, there is a kingdom. And I must bend my knee. So he's terrified. Verses 3 to 6 say that Herod is troubled. And in the Greek, it's enteraxthe. And enteraxthe means you're shaken within it, a crippling anxiety. And some of you may have, ex- have experienced something like that, where you were physically incapable of functioning. A, a crippling fear and anxiety. This is what Herod's reaction is. It's not moderate. It's extreme. And then it says, all Jerusalem with him. And that, that phrase doesn't mean every man, woman, and child in Jerusalem. Th- those who are terrified with Herod or all of the other leaders, this puppet king put up by Rome, given power by Rome, and then all of the, the leaders in, in Jerusalem who've been given power by Rome, they're all terrified. Why? Because when your commitment is to your own power and to your own throne, and you're terrified that you're going to lose, lose your position, your status, your clout, you're, you are threatened by this, this other king. And so they're all crippled with his with this terrible anxiety of losing power, of losing control, of losing their thrones. And so we know that Herod goes on to do this massacre of these children and try to save his throne. And historian Craig Blomberg says this, that they estimate the population of Bethlehem at that time would have been somewhere around 300 to 1,000 people. That's about how many people would have been in Bethlehem. So that massacre of the children that Herod does in order to protect his throne would have probably been Scores of children, possibly 20 or 30 children. These are historic estimates uh, based on the population at that time. So that is horrific, but also for Herod, minor, a minor infraction. If Herod had Instagram, would have even bothered posting that, what he did, because he had way bigger things he was up to. You know, Caesar Augustus said, and, and he wrote often how volatile Herod was. This guy was absolutely crazy for protecting his throne and clutching control that Augustus had a saying about Herod. He said it was safer to be his pig than his son because it was a play on words in the Greek. Pig is his and son is huios. 
It's safer to be as hastenous huios, like a sick Greek burn. Good afternoon. Just like absolutely sick burn. And so, because Herod was so absolutely volatile in this way, the point is, it is scary the things humanity can do. It is scary the things humanity can justify when we are trying to protect our own throne. This is why I think N.T. Wright, in a cheeky way, says we want to remember to keep Herod in Christmas as the church, because it forces us to lift the hood a little bit. Because, of course, on the surface, none of us are like Herod. He's, he's horrific and abhorrent, and everything that he did was terrifying. But below the surface, if we look at the driving force behind Herod's sin, it's the driving force behind Adam's sin, and it's the driving force behind my sin. It's, it's the thing that in the moment that I choose to protect my throne, what are the ways in which I lash out and justify protecting my kingdom? So, when we dismiss the guidance of God's word for favor of our word, or we give ourselves executive powers, it is in those sinful moments that we can do all manner of things. We can wreak havoc in relationships with our Spouses, or our friends, or our co-workers, or those which we have given responsibility for. There's a myriad of ways in which we can do this. And this, of course, this entire conversation about thrones, this clash of thrones, is on a mega-collision course with the grand narrative of our culture. Because the grand narrative at the moment is, don't you dare let anybody tell you that what you want, what you think, what you want to pursue is wrong. Don't you dare let any, any person tell you that. Don't let any institution tell you that. Don't you dare let any church tell you that. Don't you dare let any preacher tell you that. I mean, I'm not preaching right now, but those people are preaching. But don't. This wild irony of not allowing people to tell us what to do. Anyways. The emperor has no clothes. Don't you dare let anybody tell you. Because... Christ does not belong on the throne. You belong on the throne. This is the grand narrative of being the kings and queens of our own lives. At this particular moment in Canadian culture, at this particular moment in Canadian history, this is the challenge. This clash of thrones is written about extensively in Augustine's City of God. It's a, it's a 22-volume work. A monstrous treatise that's very specific against, really in a sense, he's, so for those of you who don't know who Augustine is, a North African theologian, Augustine of Hippo, right, from North Africa, 5th century. He writes essentially a, a critical theory of the Roman culture at the time. So when you read the 20, through the 22 volumes of City of God, he's looking at all sorts of things going on in the culture and contrasting the City of God with the City of Man. And one of the things that he says is that the city is the heart of mankind writ large. The the clash of thrones has been around since Eden. Giving the ego a coronation ceremony and putting the human ego on the throne has been around since Eden. And this is why mankind is not getting mankinder. So let's move on to this epiphany of grace. Because this rejection of of Christ's... uh, Throne by the power at the beginning of his life, it really foreshadows the rejection of Christ at the end of his life. And so there's this epiphany of grace. In verse 1, you've got these magi who, who come. 
they are practicing astronomy, they're charting the stars, so there's like a mathematical scientific element to their life and their work in this ancient context. But it's not just astronomy, they're also astrologers because they're mystics, so they're, they're prescribing all sorts of divine various meanings to the things that they're, they're seeing in the heavenlies. So there's astronomical observation, which is why they noticed the star, but there's also astrological expo, you know, speculation, and they're cognizant of even the Jewish prophecies about the Christ because they quote it. They, they're aware that this thing they're seeing in the, in the heavenlies means something. David Hughes is the professor of astronomy at the University of Sheffield. And he speaks about various theories about the, the Bethlehem star. So it goes without saying, but because we believe in a God who put the cosmos into motion and God is the creator of all things. Of course, the, the Bethlehem star could have been divine and something that was outside, of, outside of, of nature. So that's, of course, possible. But it is also possible that God in his great grace actually used a mechanism uh, in the cosmos in a way to draw the attention of these magi who are staring at the star, stars with great regularity. And what, what uh, Sheffield says is that one of the, it's a hypothesis, but one of the theories is that there is a, a triple convergence of Saturn and Jupiter in such a way that it would have appeared to them like it was a bright star, and that it would have happened a, a few times in the span of the two or three years that the wise men were uh, following the point at which they noticed this new star, uh, or what they thought was a new star, and uh, it's possible that in those convergences, it had the appearance of this motion of the star moving. That's one of the theories. And there's other theories. And there's people in here who study these things in university who you're more qualified to speak about it with detail than I am. But the reason that I bring it up is because I think it's, it's staggering to consider that this God of love and of grace would orchestrate and wind the very solar system like a glorious timepiece in such a way as to catch the attention of people who are far from God, who aren't seeking God, who don't deserve God, to draw them to the saving grace of God. That he would wind the cosmos like a, like a timepiece in order to do that. We have this wonderful God of saving grace who is not merely transcendent above his creation, but that cares deeply for his creation and would, would do such a thing. It's just absolutely wonderful. And so regardless of how God did it, he definitely went to astronomical lengths to draw these unlikely worshipers. This king is born. And despite the Magi's upbringings and their positions of powerful civic influence and the station that they had in life, they lay it all down. And they fall and they worship. Tremendous. God drawing these Magi from afar this epiphany of grace, this is a demonstration of his intent to extend his grace to every nation, drawing all kinds of people from all kinds of cultures throughout all of human history. This beautiful picture that God drew the attention and he brought to the conscious awareness. He opened their eyes, he opened their hearts, he gave them epiphany, and he still does. Maybe you're here today exploring Christian faith. How many tens of thousands of things has God moved in your life so that right here, right now, this particular moment in your life, you're hearing a message of his love and of his grace for you?
Not just a transcendent God that's nebulous, but a God who is personal, who came in Christ Jesus, who loves you. How many thousands of things moved, innumerable things moved, for you to hear that at this moment, His great grace. And so what will your reaction be if that's you? Will it be like these magi, these political rulers who are like, I can't deny it. I can't deny it. I've got to fall on my knees and worship this God of grace. I've got to worship this Jesus. Or will your reaction be like Herod? You just live life, this small, short, fragile life from the smallness of your throne. All of us have to grapple with this. They say in verse 2, we've come to worship him. And they do. And they bring these, these gifts. In verse 11, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Gold, the metal of kings, frankincense, the incense of the priests, a picture of kingship, the priesthood, the myrrh, this prophetic image, this myrrh used for, for perfumes, often used to anoint dead bodies. Interesting shower gift. Jesus Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, the fulfillment of every prior word and God's final word. They come, they bring these gifts. And when the Magi left the house and they went back to their uh, political careers, their academic careers, their civic life, their, their giving counsel to the kings, their worship didn't stop at the Christ child. Their, they worshipped him as king. So they leave and they now go into the city and they now have to function in their vocations and they do all the things that they were doing before but to the glory of a new king. And when you and I leave this place, our worship doesn't cease. We go into our vocations and we raise our kids and we go on campus and we enjoy recreation and everything that we're up to in the city we do to the glory of a new king. And all of our life is now worship. To the glory of our new king. And this leads to the final thing this morning. Which is this ministry of reconciliation. The Magi were these very unlikely worshippers. You and I are very unlikely worshippers. And we are called to a ministry of reconciliation to go into this city. So by the grace of God, through us, he would draw other very unlikely worshippers. And you and I are totally unqualified to decide who's likely and not likely to worship. We are merely called to give a glorious defense for the hope that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, our King. God has a long history and a long track record. He specializes in drawing the unlikely worshipers, which PSs all of us. And it's because of the glorious righteous, loving, and wise life of Jesus Christ and his atoning death and his divine resurrection, because that is true and happened in human history in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate in Rome, that God is no longer sending the stars to catch the attention of the city. He sends his church. We are the lights. We are the lights that God sends out to bear witness of himself in our city. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks about how, just like the Magi, 
We go out in this way. That's a text that is familiar to many of you that says, in Jesus Christ, we are new creations. New. The old is gone and the new has come. And if the struggle with our sin is real, and it is, and you and I still struggle and falter and fall because we protect our thrones like Herod and we do stupid, selfish, unloving things and we hurt our families and our friends and I do it more than I, I care to admit. It, I, I hate it when I protect my throne. But if, if all of these struggles are real, which they are, then what has become new? The throne. There's a new throne. And the new throne has a gravitational pull around it. It causes us to desire to continually live lives of repentance and lay down our sin and live to the glory of our Savior because of the new throne. The old compelling loves are gone. The old vision for our life is gone. Imagine those magi walking back to uh, their, their country to fulfill their, their vocations. They have a new vision. The old is gone. The new has come. You can't unsee what you've seen. And as God opens up our eyes and our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, as we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is something that the eyes of our hearts can't unsee. And therefore we live by this new throne. The old is gone, the new has come. And now we desire to live not according to our old humanity, but our new humanity, which is an increasing congruence into Christ. And through this, God uses us as ministers of his reconciliation. You know, the, the star, whatever it was that God chose, it didn't showcase itself. It was pointing to something else. And you and I being called as lights to go into the city, it's not the church showcasing ourselves. It's not us pointing to ourselves, overinflating the importance of ourselves, pointing to another, one who is greater, Christ alone. So from the good news of this gospel, may we go into the city as unlikely worshipers. And through us, may God reconcile others to himself by his amazing grace. Let's pray.